You're listening to another episode of the Zag Group here, continuing our series talking to folks with NLC connections, NLC alums who are in the legal field. The courts are on our minds these days. The Supreme Court's on our mind. But we're talking about issues that are affecting us locally at state levels. And here today, we're joined by Jill Habig is here, and she did a lot to contribute to NLC starting up, actually an advisory board member in the early days, supporting Nashville's efforts to expand. Excited to have her on. Let's get to it. All right, Jill. Thanks, of course, for your help in the early days of NLC. It's always great to connect with folks who were around at that time. What do you remember about NLC in its inception? You know, I. it's funny. I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I founded my own nonprofit just a few years ago. And it's just, it's remarkable. At the er, In the early days of NLC, it was unclear whether it was going to become a thing at all. It was just, <laughs> you know, a lot of passionate people who were really interested in fostering progressive leadership in a different way. And, you know, it was a, a groups of people who would gather in San Francisco and D.C. and other places. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a really a great idea, something really needed in the progressive movement, but had no idea it would turn into the national force that it is today. So it's been really exciting to see it grow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, give us a scoop on your connection to the legal world, because as I mentioned in the intro, right, so many folks are, are focused right now on the, the most important court of all, the Supreme Court, but so much of uh, uh, the NLC alum community does work locally and at state levels, bringing their progressive values and, and kind of legal background and expertise uh, together. Uh, how does that come together for you? Yeah, I actually came to the law through politics. I didn't really know that I wanted to be a lawyer until I'd become active in campaigns and in the political world for a while. And um went to law school many, many years ago, but have been now working as a lawyer in state and local government for over a decade. And that was where my interest in law and politics and policy kind of all came together. I had an opportunity right out of law school to work in the San Francisco City Attorney's Office and actually work on the marriage equality trial against Proposition 8. And so that kind of opened my eyes into what the potential was for progressive lawyers through their own local and state governments to be able to actually like use the tools of government and the legal authority of government to serve residents. So that took me to the attorney general's office in California. I worked for Kamala Harris for many years working on civil rights and, and economic justice cases. And then most recently, I actually started a nonprofit called Public Rights Project that works with state and local governments across the country to help them bring better impact litigation to enforce the rights of their residents on civil rights, workers' rights, immigrant rights issues, those sorts of things. And then in terms of the California context, what ways have you found to be successful navigating uh, people in the state house trying to get things done, get things passed? What, uh, you know, what things have, have you felt like really paid off? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I have learned over the last several years is that we spend so much time thinking about getting legislation through the Capitol and, you know, Sacramento, they're there. We have our struggles, but we actually have a functional government in Sacramento. So congratulations to us. <laughs> um, unlike the national government, we, we, we pass laws. Um, but one of the things that I've seen it, that is missing is the implementation and enforcement of those laws. And that's part of the reason I started public rights project is that, you know, we in, in LA and San Francisco and in many parts of the state and in the capital, 
we pass progressive laws all the time that, you know, increase minimum wage, that protect tenants, that do all these things. And those laws are pretty meaningless unless we have somebody enforcing them and making sure that companies are actually treating their workers, treating us as tenants and consumers the way that the law requires. And so that's the biggest area of focus for me is thinking about how do we make sure that when the city of Santa Monica, for example, passes this great paid sick leave law that workers in Santa Monica are actually getting the benefits of that law. And so that's been a big area of focus for me. And do you feel like once those stronger laws and, and more progressive laws are passed, is it a matter of, of funding and enforcement? And there's just not enough human bodies to go out and actually then check that these laws are being followed? Or is it something more nefarious on the, on the part of, of actors who aren't uh, living up to the spirit of what the law meant to be? What What's kind of the pattern you see? I think it's mostly a question of resources and capacity uh, and the way that state and local governments have been set up historically. So to give you an example, um, you know, on the resources side, we just have to think about when we think about legislative advocacy, we have to include the budget to, to enforce that legislation. And so often that doesn't happen. Um, so that that's a relatively simple fix, not always easy, but but mm-hmm. simple. Um, the capacity issue is a little bit more challenging. So to give you an example, um, the when the legislature passed AB5 last year, which was you know, cha- a big landmark workers' rights law that made it harder for companies to misclassify their workers as independent contractors. Um, there were a lot of cities, we were actually working with them at Public Rights Project, working with governments across the country and with worker organizers to enforce that law. And another challenge that comes up is that a lot of times government is not directly accountable and in touch with the communities they serve in a way that helps them bring cases that protect the rights of those residents. And so to give you an example, you know, often if you think about government government services, um, most of the time they're complaint based. You have to, at you as a resident, have to complain to the government that something has gone wrong, whether it's something as simple as a pothole or something as big as your employer stealing your wages. Um, and complaint-based systems are pretty inequitable, right? Who An undocumented worker is not going to complain to the government about their workplace situation. Um, somebody who is, you know, on the edge of poverty and just trying to keep their lives together is likely not going to complain to the government. And so one of the things we've been trying to do at Public Rights Project is really bridge that gap between community organizing and government enforcement and make sure that the voices and stories of community-based organizations that are actually talking to workers on the ground and talking to consumers actually make their way into government so that they can bring cases that actually respond to the needs of the community. So that's a really, I think, kind of um, under-addressed gap that we've been trying to fill at Public Rights Project. Because if you're not hearing from the community members who are most vulnerable, you're not going to be bringing cases that actually address their rights. We'll come back with Jill continuing talking about this intersection of progressive values and the legal world. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. Jill, do you have any sense of optimism about Supreme Court realities these days, or are you as, as low as, as most people are? <laughs> Depends on what time of the day you talk yeah, to right. me, but I honestly think the the 
only thing we can do right now is focus on what we can control. There, nothing is certain about the outcome uh, at the court. The court is critical to every aspect of our daily lives, even when we're not thinking about it as much as in the last few days. And so um, the, the only thing we can do is vote, mobilize as many human beings to vote as we possibly can in every corner of the country and organize uh, as much as we can to push every elected official to do the right thing. And so no, nothing is predetermined right now. It is a, it, it's a slim margin we have to navigate in order to try to get to the right place, but it's all kind of up to us. And so that is at least something that we can control right now rather than just sort of <laughs> sitting in the pit of despair as I'm tempted to do sometimes. And then do, do lawyers, I'm not sure they all get together at the collective water cooler, but I'm sure there's people you're <laughs> the zoom to. water cooler. Exactly. Right. That you, you talk with these issues about, but yeah, is there momentum you feel like for legitimately changing the, the structure of the court and the nine justices we know is something that is not set in stone and can evolve and change. And we know there's different, approaches that you could even take besides adding two justices or adding five justices, you could do things like, like Mayor Pete put out there during the, the primary where you get to the number 10 and then those 10 pick five more that they all agree on. Something that would, you know, put less less pressure on these nine folks to decide our, our entire country's fate. What are your thoughts on where that discussion and hopefully some different outcomes may go? I think there's huge potential in those proposals. And I think we're seeing the ground shift underneath us in terms of the potential of expanding the court, changing the court's jurisdiction, uh, really making some fundamental reforms to our democracy are suddenly on the table in a way that advocates have been pushing for a long time, but that hadn't really made it into the mainstream debate. And so I think it's really up to us to continue to push our own elected officials to make those conversations even more mainstream. There are a couple, I saw a proposal coming through the house this morning or yesterday um, about court expansion and term limits for mm -hmm. the justices. So I think we're going to start to see more and more of those proposals. And that, that is a good thing because we need to put real democracy reform on the table in a big way. And then last thing, what should the, the non-lawyer layperson watch for on election night? Because I feel like uh, as much as the candidates will be the star, I feel like the lawyers may be the star as soon as the polls close. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of activity in so many states. What should folks watch for or listen for? I think uh, people should really be watching for misinformation about mail-in voting. You know, we know that uh, like in California, we are used to not knowing the result on election night because we've been used to mail-in voting for a long time. I think it's so important to educate your own friends, family, and neighbors that that is a normal thing and push back against misinformation on that front. Um, certainly look for, you know, lawyers to be prepared to move in when, uh, if, if and when uh, the Trump administration tries to um, pull various shenanigans. I won't even go into the dystopian brainstorming sessions some lawyers have been having about, you know, what might happen. Um, but I think there's a huge potential in the next, what are we, 45 days out uh, for people to organize and, and focus on what they can control. And then we will um, turn it over to some capable lawyers after the fact and, and hopefully um, get to where we need to get. 
Yeah. Listen, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Zag. Make sure to catch all the episodes we're dropping in the next couple of weeks with our NLC alum and folks with NLC ties who are in the legal community. And get those in all the places you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Apple. They're all there. Check them out. Until next time, we'll catch you soon. <laughs>